Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Amy. And all God's people said, Amen. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So that is my desire and our desire for you, that you come into a right relationship with God through Christ. And so let that be the case today. And we even start the service with that invitation to do just that. If you have little ones through grade four and you'd like them to be in an age-graded service downstairs, Children's Church, we call it. You can dismiss them now or you can keep them with you, whatever you'd like to do. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to uh, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, found in 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. We're in a continuing study through the books of First and 2 Corinthians. If you've been with us, you know that. We are in our second part of Comfort, the Sweet from the Bitter, as Paul starts in just this marvelous way in this new letter that we're studying today. Last week, of course, we missed from the ice storm and uh, good old Lynchburg just sprung that on us on Sunday morning. If you missed knowing what we were going to do and you were wondering whether we were going to meet, not that you were going to drive there or not, but you were just curious, and uh, you can find that on the Brian Journey page. So if you're a member of Facebook or if you're part of Facebook or maybe if you don't have a Facebook page, it might be worth it just to get on Facebook so you can go to the Brian Journey group page. It is a private group, and so you'll have to ask to be in it, Berean Journey Group, and that will, will receive you into it and put you on that list, and then you can receive the updates uh, that come by way of weather closings and other things that would happen, prayer requests that you can be a part of as a body of Christ. So we'd love to have you do that, check that out, and that'll be helpful to you. We begin the second uh, section in Paul's letter we've entitled The Sweet from the Bitter. We're in the process of looking at a very personal revelation from Paul. And I think that you've enjoyed that so far, just really getting our feet wet here in this book. And instead of what we've been used to with Paul in his previous letter, if you were with us, uh, addressing errors and and correcting conduct, in this letter we get to see Paul's character. Now he will still be addressing things in the church, but I think that you'll enjoy this different uh, perspective, because in this case we're going to get to see a triumphant Christian in Paul. You're going to see a victorious Christian, but not because things are always good. Uh, You're going to see it in the middle of pain. You're going to see it in the middle of concern, in the middle of trouble. And that is uh, lessons from Paul's life with tremendous application. And I think you can see that early on as we uh, read through this passage. Look at verses uh, 1. We'll start at verse 1 because it's been a while since we've been here. Start at verse 1. We'll read through verse 4. Open your copy of God's Word. You can find, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that around you in the seats or just read from your copy that you have or someone else next to you. Uh, your app, and we'll just give you verse cues and we can stay together, okay? So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Picking up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, verse 4 who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Let's stop right there. And as we got started here with Paul's perspective, Paul really deals with three things here that are so important for us when it comes to difficulty. Having a proper theology of suffering, I think, is very very foundational to a victorious Christian life. I think Paul could be the poster guy for suffering and victorious living and being able to deal with it in abasing or abounding and doing both of those in victory. And so uh, as we see Paul's life, Paul says, as I follow Christ, follow me. 
obviously, as we see Paul give these instructions to us, we can then relate to them and understand, hey, these are the examples of what it looks like to walk in victory regardless of our circumstance. And so Paul, this is Paul's perspective, and he deals with things that are very important for us. And his perspective is illustrated through, as we saw last time, attitude, experience, and application. And we saw that Paul's attitude here is where we have to start. So just briefly, because we missed a week, uh, principle number one from Paul's life of getting the sweet from the bitter, and we went through this already. You can find this online if you'd like to get the full version of it. But getting the sweet from the bitter was an attitude of confident assurance in the nature of God. Without going through all that again, it parts, Paul's heart attitude is that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And so he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And Paul reminds the church at Corinth, that this attitude is where he starts and where they're going to have to start if they're going to have a right attitude towards what happens and the things that happen and difficulties that come along in life. And one of the many things we can praise God for and thus learn to trust him is that he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And so Paul just starts right there. This is my attitude. You're not going to change this. I know this is God. This is where he comes from. And we saw that that word all is pretty important as it relates to attitude. It just means this, no difficulty, no hardship, no pressing pressure, uh, that is that word that we see a lot of times for, for things that uh, oppress us, things that are difficult, hardship that the Bible uses to describe some of our life. Uh, none of those things would be too much uh, for the mercy and comfort God provides. So here's this statement, this wonderful promise, this attitude that's so important. The Father of mercies, God of all comfort, how far does it reach? All. That's how far it reaches. All. The promise is just that full. He's the origin of mercies. That's what it means to be the father of something. He's the God of all comfort. And whenever you need mercy, whenever you need comfort, and that, sh uh, that is your source, and that should be a great source of assurance, a uh, source of confidence, optimism, freedom, to be secure in the understanding that no matter what the hurt, no matter what the trouble, no matter what the testing, the difficulty, just like we saw before, it's very comprehensive for the Christian, for the believer. Whatever the extent of the life situation, so you just fill that in, whatever that may be, perhaps it was, you know, Something you were born with, something that happened as a child, whatever it is through your adulthood, whatever may come in the future, whatever it is, whatever the pressing pressure, that's that idea of testing, difficulty. He is the father of mercies, oktirmos, compassion, pity. Understand that whatever you're going through, God's a source of compassion and pity and mercy. That's his disposition towards you. So you need to know that for sure. God's disposition towards you is compassion, it's pity, and it's mercy. And it's not just that, he's the God of all comfort, very comprehensive. Periclesis, that idea of uh, the root in the verb, it's a noun, periclesis, the God of all comfort, but the root in verb and noun forms found 10 times in five verses here early in this letter, 16 times in 2 Corinthians. It's important to Paul that we know this. And here Paul says he is the source of comfort. He is known as such, it's his character, and we saw that Paul gets very specific at the beginning of verse 4. Look there if, with, with me if you would. And then he moves from attitude. So my attitude is, this is God's nature. We understand this is his nature. We can rely on this. It's our foundation that we stand on. His attitude towards us, his disposition towards us is of compassion and pity and mercy. And he is the God of all comfort. Uh, he, no matter what the life situation, he is there to bring comfort to us. And then he moves to experience. And he says this, who comforts us in all our affliction. And so not only is God the source of all true comfort, and, and all true comfort comes from him. Not only is that part of his character and part of his name, Paul says he's doing it right now. Comfort here is the present active participle, parakaleo. 
And we saw that principle number two is this. Part of Paul getting the sweet from the bitter is, not only does he have the right heart attitude and understanding about who God's nature is, what God's nature is and who he is, his realization is that at the very point of trouble, God is actively comforting. So that's Paul's experience and ours as well and can be ours. And that's the marvelous benefit the believer has, see? It doesn't mean he's going to make it easy. Coming alongside and being a comforter doesn't mean he's going to just make it go away. It means he's going to strengthen, he's going to encourage, he's going to build up, he's going to come alongside and do those things. And, and there's no disclaimers here. Again, it's comprehensive. It reaches right in to the affliction, who comforts us in all our affliction, no matter what it is. And that affliction could be, and catch this, beloved, it could be coming from people, it could be coming from a body that doesn't work right. It could be coming from a natural disaster. It could be coming from a world that's cursed or wicked rulers. It could be coming from the Lord as he desires to perfect us. And we'll look at that more today because I think that's super important to, to grasp that in a place where people err a lot. And they think, well, this can't be God doing this or this can't be God allowing this. Or as a result of his chastening or for him to prove a heavenly point, like with Job, where Job didn't even know what was going on, but was the example of what it looks like to walk with the Lord and love him in spite of circumstances. Whatever the source, the amazing thing is that God reaches into that affliction, and he speaks comfort and, to us, and he looks at us with mercy, and he looks at us with compassion. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.4, as we moved into application, who comforts us, in all our affliction, so I have this attitude of God is the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, and he is actively doing that at any point that you have a difficulty, and then that is very important, but not in a vacuum. Paul says, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And as we saw principle number three then, uh, the completed circle is that God gives us these benefits so that we can give them away. See, he's at work in any affliction. He's not restricted. Every single one, anyone, all of them, all under God's sovereignty, and he is allowing whatever comes, and God is a comforter, and we receive his comfort, and part of, of that is accepting his sovereignty in what he has allowed. And sometimes that's the biggest wrestling point of all, that God has allowed the difficult times to come, and his mercy and his compassion are right there, and then walk in that strength, see, and become a reprint of that comfort to someone else. So we start with the right understanding of God's nature. We move, we look at our experience. Whenever there's affliction, God's right there bringing comfort. And then we know God is good and we've experienced his goodness. And now we give that comfort away, see, to someone else. And this is Paul. And he has this attitude of praise, see. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says this. And we'll see this in much more detail uh, in the future in our study. But Paul relates some of what he's learned. And so I want to just tap this just for a second for you and give this snapshot to you. Verse 9, he says this. And he said to me, Paul has gone through his life, of course, he's had some difficulty, he's had some affliction, that pressing pressure, that's that word. Uh, and so he's had that, and he says to me, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. So this comes on the heels of Paul saying, please take it away, please take it away, please take it away, three times. Uh, please remove this from me, this difficulty. And he says to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses. So here he just kind of takes in a bunch of things, doesn't he? Weaknesses in the flesh, with insults, that's from other people. 
difficult times brought on you by somebody else's comments or attitude with distress, whatever that might be. That might be uh, difficulty uh, crossing a sea. That might be hardship that Paul faced uh, in a storm. It could be all kinds of distress about the church or anything else that comes along that has caused Paul difficulty with persecution as a direct result of his ministry, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When these happen as a result of my relationship with Christ, then I am most most content, he says, and rather boast about my weaknesses. And just briefly, two things we can see here. You can put these in your notes if you'd like. Number one, he really just looks at all the afflictions. And this is a wonderful perspective from, for us to see. He just looks at all the afflictions he suffered. He kind of sums them up with those words. Weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. And, weak, uh, and that weakness, he says, and when I'm weak, I'm strong. So he just kind of looks at, he, you know, he looks at all the afflictions he suffered as a means of, here it is devastating his own human pride and weakening to him to the point where the strength of God is infused into him and that's what made him the mighty man that he was. So if you can, wrap your mind around that, okay? Paul was, he said, well content to suffer this devastation of his own pride, his own uh, self-confidence, his own ability to control the environment around him and whatever it is, see, things out of his control, Devastate that home, human pride, weak him to the point where the strength of God is infused into him. At that point, he says, I'll boast about my weaknesses because, why? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That's what God told Paul. My power is perfected in your weakness. So that's the first one. Number two, then he could see himself as merely, listen, this is the, out, this is the outcome of the right attitude about suffering and difficulty. He could see himself as merely, catch this, beloved, a conduit through which God could pass comfort and strength to others because he had experienced so much of it himself. See? And we're going to get to this passage, and I love this section here because it has so much to do with uh, the practical application of uh, physical disabilities and hardships. But Paul knew that in God's sovereign plan, he provides mercy, he provides comfort to his children, his disposition towards them is compassionate. And so the Apostle Paul can say, I'll speak well of God, I'll bless God, that's what it means, his name, uh, you know, I'm going to bless his name uh, because he comforts us in all his afflictions. He, he knows that God's nature is not, and, and nothing was going to convince him that God is not like this, and nothing's going to convince him that God doesn't do this because that's his, been his experience all along. And Paul knows this from God's word. But on top of that, his experience is that the Lord has comforted him over and over Again, and Paul is saying, I want you to know that the God of all comfort never fails. It is his nature, it's in his promise, and he's doing it right now, right when you need it. And he knows he didn't you know, need to go through all that in a vacuum. There's a direct application. God doesn't waste any suffering at all. He's preparing you for a future glory that you would never have had, Peter says, unless you'd experienced the difficulty, and he's, he's directing this application to comfort others. So in the here and now, you're going to have an opportunity for ministry that you wouldn't have had apart from difficult times. And he sees comfort as a trust, catch this, as a stewardship. You've received this from the Lord. And he sees God's comfort as something not intended to end with him, but to be passed on, see. He's the Father of mercies, God of all comfort. Christ is a comforter. The very name of the Holy Spirit is, what? Comforter. And so should we be. Paul is, in effect, then saying, you know, I'm happy to be comforted by God in my distress so that I can use that comfort he's given me and the strength he gave me to strengthen you. And these biblical principles can be very hard to apply. And it's really great to grasp them early in life. You know, you should be teaching your children a theology of suffering. 
they should know early that things are not always going to be perfect and difficult people will cause them trouble and hardships in life will make things turn out differently than they expected that they would. And that doesn't mean God's bad. That means God's wonderful and in his wonderful plan, he's allowing you to go through a difficult time or a disappointment or a hardship or a disability or whatever it is so that you can receive comfort from him, number one, and in that comfort is part of the sovereignty of, of addressing his sovereignty and knowing this has come through God's hand. And that doesn't mean he's bad. That means he's good and he's kind of be worthy. And I can rejoice in the weakness because in the weakness, I can be strong beyond any physical ability I may have had before. And I'll have an exposure to something that I'm going to be able to comfort someone else later because it's a circle. And if, you know, if you're one of those parents that's always making it okay for your kid and you're making sure he doesn't go through anything and nobody can ever tell him anything, whatever. Listen, you are setting him up for some serious problems. Okay? Because the world is not going to treat him that way. And people are not going to treat them that way. And there's going to be tons of disappointments and things that are, you're going to come up short in life. And it's not going to seem like it's too fair looking from human eyes. So this, this is super important. And I think that it makes a huge difference in how we, we look at this. These biblical principles are very hard to apply. Very hard to apply when you're in the middle of the difficulty and you haven't reconciled to yourself that God disposition towards you is one of compassion. You've got to begin to look at yourself as a tool that God's preparing for his use. And moving away from a victim mentality, you as a believer are not a victim in any definition of that word. That is the backbone of modern day counseling and you need to throw it in the trash. There's no way you can reconcile a biblical understanding of suffering and difficulty if you are also embracing the victim mentality, okay? Instead of embracing the fact that God in his sovereignty has allowed us to go through very difficult times or times of suffering, that we be used by him, not in our own strength, trying to overcome what we perceive as a victimization, but strengthened by God of all comfort so we can be comfort to others, see, and not just all these things are against me, see. Very, very important principles, beloved. And there's a great illustration, and I, I didn't get to it last time because we ran out of time, but it's found in Luke 22, 42. And you can start in Matthew 26, and we're going to go to Luke 22. So look at Matthew 26 first, and you can turn to Luke 22, um, and we'll be in both of those for a little while. And I think that you'll enjoy this time, and I think it'll be refreshing to look at it uh, as we understand uh, the Lord's perspective on it, uh, particularly as Jesus is dealing with his disciples. And this is going to explain, Matthew 26 will really explain uh, the passage from Luke 22. So what we've done is, in context, we've come right to the night of Jesus' betrayal. And they're about to go to the garden to pray. And verse 31 of Matthew 26, see where we are? Then Jesus said to them, that's where we are. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Verse 32, see where we are? But after I have been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee but Peter, verse 33, said to him, catch this, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Wow. It's like one of those times when you're all talking in a room and everybody stops talking and then your voice is the only one that's there. That's kind of imagine that, you know. They're all saying, oh, we won't, we won't, we won't. And then Peter, like, all by himself, we get to isolate it. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. So there's the situation. So Peter has this desire to follow. 
And the fortunate part is the strength of character to do it is missing. And he doesn't know this. And that's sometimes the case for every one of us, isn't it? And like we said before, when things are going well, we may have no idea of our bankrupt condition. Let a little difficulty come along, and wow, we can really see where we need some lessons in humility. We can find out pretty quickly how much we trust God, how short our fuse is, where our value system is set as soon as a little difficulty comes on. And so Jesus and his disciples eat the Passover meal together after Peter has said all of this, and all of them agreed, and all that. And after the meal, the disciples get into an argument. So, you know, here's the situation. You know, Jesus goes and he washes all their filthy feet, and he dries them, and all that, and, and then he serves them. And then he says, you know, uh, you know, the, the lords of, of your culture lorded over people who are under him. I'm not one like that. I've come to serve, and I've served you. And so we get all done with that, and what, what's, the first, what's the first conversation the disciples have among each other? They're getting an argument over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. So they are not even in the same, they're not even in the same ballpark, okay? They're arguing about stuff, and they're thinking about stuff, and it's not what the Father wants them to think about, but it's so, it's so appropriate and so much like us, isn't it? And Jesus has to explain to them, you know, by his example, what kind of servant leadership looks like, and so we can pick up now, look at Luke 22, okay? So flip over, Luke 22, 27. You'll be glad you did. There are lots of things you can take notes on here, so, you know, look in your copy of God's Word, flip over in your app to uh, Luke 22, and uh, verse 27, and we're going to get the rest of the conversation, because this is a parallel passage, and I love this. So you see the setup, you see what Peter said, you see what all, those, all of the other disciples said, then you see the argument they get into, and Jesus has to correct them and say, hey, you know, this is what servant leadership looks like. And then Luke 22, 27, he says this, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. Verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. Verse 29, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. Verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my, fa- at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's pretty impressive, right? He's like, you've been with me in my trials, and so my father's granted me a kingdom, and I'm going to grant you the right to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. So that's pretty impressive. And that's a pretty great honor, right? I think everybody would step right up and say, I would love to do that. Of course, we didn't have to go through the things that they went through. And so the Lord has, has set aside some important things for them. But mark this next comment, okay? Verse 31. This is where we're going to key and how it's going to tie back to what we're talking about, okay? Do you see where we are? Verse 31. Simon, Simon. Now, it's perhaps that Peter, again, was one of the most outspoken ones on who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Just like he just said, hey, if everybody else falls away, I'm not going to fall away. And then they're in an argument about who's going to be greatest. Maybe Peter was a little louder than the rest of them, or he noticed the attitude was there. And so Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, pause right there. Now, if that doesn't make your blood run cold, I'm not sure what can make your blood run cold. Okay? If if the, the master says to you, Jesus says to you, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now, just so that you understand this, this is what Peter would have understood. This is an actual refining process, and Peter would have grasped this. And the first step is threshing. So the wheat is harvested, and uh, the, the way Peter would have imagined it is would to spread the wheat out on a floor made from stone or concrete or tamped earth and then beat it with a flail. Okay, there's the first part. So the wheat is still on the, uh, it's still on the stalk and in the husk, and, and so it's going to have to be beaten to, to, to uh, come loose. And that would loosen and break the outer shell of the grain head. Okay? And then the second step was winnowing. Okay? 
This is where the outer shell or any parts of the plant are removed from the grain. So Peter would have seen this done. He would have understood how this worked. A farmer would throw the grain in the air and the lighter chaff would be blown away uh, and blown off even in a decent breeze. That's what would happen and the grain would fall back to the ground and then they could gather up the grain to be put to use. So it was a purifying process, okay? You had the harvest and it was full of all kinds of everything and then you just wanted the grain and so you're flailing it on the ground and beating it and then it comes loose and the grain is heavier than the chaff and so you throw it up in the air, the chaff floats away and there's the grain. And so that's how Peter would have understood that. That's what Jesus intended to say. So this is this imagery. Jesus is trying to draw to Peter's attention. And here's what he's saying. It's going to be rough, Peter. And with a broader application, that's how tribulation and suffering in difficult times work for the believer. And, you know, Jesus said, Satan has uh, demanded, he's requested by word. That's what that means. He's asked for permission to refine you. And what was obviously the answer from Jesus? Yes. It was yes. That's what we need here. Obviously, we get to the example in the word of how headstrong Peter was and how arrogant he was. And if I'll fall away, I won't fall away. And, you know, and probably arguing a little loudly about who gets first place in the kingdom and all of that, which is why he drew the Lord's attention. Yes, there needs to be some purifying going on here. Was Jesus okay with that? Yes, he was, obviously, because if he wasn't, he would have just said no, but that's not what he said. And we don't hear the yet, and I've said yes to him, go for it. We just understand that that's what happened. So the imagery here, he's pouring Peter's attention, it's going to be rough, and that's how it is for believers. You know, it can be like a threshing, like a winnowing, like a, a purifying, see? The Lord desires to do some certain thing. Listen, beloved, the Lord always desires to do some certain thing or accomplish some certain thing in the lives of those who are his, always in the perfecting mode. He always wants to use you and make you more like a tool, more of a tool that's more effective for his service. And maybe it's, and there's all kinds of things, and again, beloved, I don't always make application for you because the Holy Spirit is at work through his word making application for you. But here's just some things you can imagine could be the reasons for, other than what we just saw with Peter, and some of these will be listed there, uh, of an attitude of very of high confidence in his own flesh, an attitude of his importance inside the kingdom, and all those kinds of things, see? And so that drew uh, Jesus' attention. But maybe it's to awaken to us the sweetness of Scripture. So maybe that threshing and maybe the difficult times will do that. And if you've been through a hardship, you probably know this, the Scripture is pretty sweet in the middle of a hard time, isn't it? If you understand God's good and his disposition towards you is compassion then you can look to Scripture in a hard time and it, it, it provides a very sweet comfort to you, doesn't it? Maybe it's to drive us to prayer or deepen the prayer lives of people around us. Like if you go on Berean Journey page and you see some very hard prayer requests that are given to us, maybe for an individual or for someone they know, and that draws us to prayer. Perhaps that difficult time was for us to be drawn to a more uh, intimate prayer life. Maybe to lead us to uh, spiritual introspection kind of taking stock, and you realize you're a lot more bankrupt than you thought you were. Maybe, maybe to humble us, see? Maybe to develop some qualities of patience and endurance and maturity. Maybe it's to heighten our desire for his kingdom to come. We get really comfortable in our own skin and in this world and, and all the things that it, it uh, provides that seems so satisfying. And maybe it's just to remind us, this is not your kingdom, and you're just a wayfarer here, and you have one that doesn't fade away. Don't forget that. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's to provide an opportunity to witness to a lost family member or friend through your hardship. Maybe it's to file off a rough edge or two or ten.
It's certainly, as we've seen, so that we can become comforters to others. That's hands down. We already have that direct instruction from Paul. When you are comforted, you're, you're going to go through difficult times, and you're going to be comforted by the Lord, and that full circle is you become a comforter. It just seems so obvious, right, because Jesus is that, and, and the Holy Spirit is that, and God is the God of all comfort, and as a, as a follower, we should be that, right? Maybe it's to cultivate thankfulness. Ralph Waldo Emerson observed that, and I've said this to you before, but I like this quote, if the constellations appeared only once in a thousand years, imagine what an exciting event it would be. But because they're there every night, we barely give them a look. And the point was, obviously, that we're so familiar with them that they're not special to us anymore. When the boys were little, and they would, we would get out of the car on the way home and it would be pitch black, you know, I, was always, I always enjoyed the fact that they would almost always look up and say, Dad, there's the little dipper. Or something like that. And then you look up out of your busyness and whatever it is, and you're just like, wow. You know? And these cold nights have been nice for that. If you looked up a few times, a cold nights just give you that crisp, clear look at the sky. But if, if it were only there once every thousand years, it'd be quite an event because it's there all the time. We hardly look at it. Martin Luther observed that we, he says, quote, exhibit a degree of thankfulness in life, catch this, in reverse proportion to the amount of blessing we've received. He wrote in his book, Table Talk, Quote, the greater God's gifts and works, the less likely they're regarded. And then he gives this example. A hungry man is more thankful for his morsel than a rich man for the heavenly laden table. A lonely woman in a nursing home will appreciate a single visit more than a popular woman, a party thrown in her honor. And one of the evidences, see, that can be accomplished by difficulty is a gradual reversal of that pattern, see, where he can make a people who exhibit thankfulness in proportion to the gifts and blessings they've received. So maybe the difficult time is just to make you thankful for all the rich blessing. And man, you don't have to be sick very long to be thankful for a day without sickness, do you? You know, if you can remember the exact date and year that you threw up last, like I can. I mean, and on that day, you're like, oh. And you think, what was it like to not feel like this, right? I mean, everybody knows this. And I'm, you know, I'm not minimizing. Some of you have much worse than that. A hundred times worse. And I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying sometimes it's to make us thankful for the good days, right? And I think it's good, beloved, it's good, again, to get our mind around this kind of thinking. That shouldn't surprise, those comments should not surprise us at all. If we understand any at all about the Lord and his use of difficult times in the life of a believer. The Lord has some plans through the difficulties in life. Now look at verse uh, 32 of Luke 22. So the Lord says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And so that doesn't sound too good. Most of us would say, uh, Thank, thanks a lot, but I, I'd rather not. <clears throat> Verse 32, but I prayed for you <coughs> that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, Catch it. Strengthen your brothers. Is the Lord going to waste the difficult time in Peter's life? No. He's going to do some perfecting, right? He's going to do some humbling. He's going to do some, uh, get some qualities of patience, endurance, maturity. He's going to do all that. And he's not going to waste it. It's not going to end with Peter, is it? Comfort and strength are being provided to Peter, even though he thinks he won't need them, right? Catch these words, verse 33. 
So here Jesus just says this. Satan wants to demand to sift you like wheat. He's asked for permission. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail and one once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And here's Peter's comment. But he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Verse 34. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you know me. So even in the middle of Satan's demand to sift you like wheat, and I've prayed for you that you'll endure, and when you come back, drinking your brothers, and he's still, hey, Lord, don't worry about me. I'll go with you to prison, and I'll go with you to death. Like right now, bring it on. So the Lord knew that Peter was going to be tempted by Satan severely. He was going to deny Christ, and Jesus says to him, and what's going to happen to you, Peter, is this. You're going to get hit with some very difficult temptations because Satan's asked to be able to put you through it. And there's going to be times, listen, of failure, but I won't let you go. And then Luke twenty-two sixty, 60, skip to there, tells us this, that Peter denies the Lord. So we go through the time when Jesus is carried away and he's taken to trial and all that. And we've read that recently, so I won't read that again. So we get through all of that, and Jesus is there uh, on the court in trial. And Luke twenty-two sixty tells us that Peter denies the Lord. And Matthew 26, catch this, beloved. Matthew 26 tells us that the last time he's, he is accused of being one, uh, one of uh, Jesus' disciples, it says he began to curse and to swear. Now, Luke doesn't say that, but Matthew tells us he began to curse and to swear. In other words, call on God to kill him if he's a liar. That's what it means to curse. To call on God to kill him. May God kill me if I'm telling a lie. I'm not one of these man's disciples. So this is Peter, who just got through saying, I'll go to prison and I'll go to death with you, and even if I'll fall away, I won't fall away. Okay? So that's a pretty severe nosedive, right? And then Luke tells us in Luke uh, 22, verse 60, immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So in some way, there was some eye contact that was going on from where Peter was standing and where the Lord was. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And may I throw in this, and remembered all of his own boasting of how he would go to prison and to death. And if all fall away, I won't, because, you know, you and I are the same way. Not only did he remember what Jesus said, he remembered all the foolish things he had said right up until that point. Okay, that's all part of the whole process, isn't it? Bringing into an example and highlighting with a marker, hey, this too. Okay? And the argument about who's going to be greater in the kingdom and all of that stuff, see? This all comes into stark contrast to what's going on here. And Jesus is like, hey... This is not good. And so it said, verse 62, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Stop right there. Obviously, all in all, not Peter's best day. Can you relate to that? Of course you can. Things were going well and, and Peter didn't know the bankrupt condition of his obedience, did he? He had no idea just how bankrupt his own character was. And he didn't know the strength of character he needed to get through the trial. He didn't know it was missing. His evaluation of himself was a little short, right? We, we identify with that. We evaluate ourselves pretty highly. And then when the pressure comes and the squeezing place comes, and what gets squeezed out of us is not those, what patience and endurance and, right, and, and becoming per, uh, perfected. What gets squeezed out is why are all these things against me? Or we just fail miserably where we thought we wouldn't. 
We recognize that, see? We didn't know it was missing. He didn't know it was missing. But Jesus knew it was missing. I, I, remember, I read a, I mean, not that long ago, and it's, don't take it for theology. It's, it's, it is what, it's, it's good for what it is, all right? Jesus doesn't bring you through trials to see what you need to, what, what needs to be part of your character. He already knows that. He brings you through trials so that you can see what you need in your character. Sometimes we don't, we're not fast learners, you know, so I always tell people, if you're in the middle of a difficult time, let's learn the lessons the Lord has for us to learn, and let's glorify him and be comforter, because we don't necessarily want to keep repeating it, right? Because he's going to bring about this certain thing that he wants in our character, and he's going to do it as many times as he needs to to make that happen. And the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, he knows, see, Jesus knows what's short, you know, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, he knows where we're short, but in the warning of what was coming, Jesus is, says to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So in other words, this is going to be tough, but you're not on your own in it. When once you've turned again, he says, when, when you get through it and you turn around like he did in verse 62, says he went out and he wept bitterly. And I think that we can see just the depth of the sorrow, oh, how badly he it did all of that. You know, that must have really been overwhelming to Peter. Peter himself failed miserably. But the bitter tears were obviously expressive of his repentance. And after that, the Lord said to him, when once you have turned again, see, strengthen your brothers. In other words, this is needful for you to go through this because I want to use you to strengthen other people. And, you know, obviously, I want to develop qualities of patience, endurance, and maturity. I want to humble you, Peter. I want to get you to the point where I can really use you. And you can be sharpened to the point where you're very effective for the ministry I have for you. But you're not at that point yet. But you think you are. See? So it's needful, Peter. Great example for us, a great understanding between Paul and Peter and, and the difficult times the guys went through. I think we could easily say, hey, the Lord probably has some, some of that for us, and perhaps he's brought some of it on you already. This Peter who said in Matthew, even though all may fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. Even, though, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. See, and the Lord had some refining to do with Peter, and he does that with all of us, see. And maybe he is that source of the affliction or trial, you know, or maybe it's people or health or money or difficulties. It all filters through him, whatever it is. The, whatever it is, the Lord, through that difficulty, wants to look at our lives as tools that God is preparing for his use, see, and move away from this victim mentality and saying, all these things are against me. And instead, embracing the fact that God, in his sovereignty, has allowed us to go through a very difficult time or a time of suffering so that we can be used by him not in our own strength, trying to overcome what we perceive as our victimization, but strengthened by the God of all comfort, content in the weakness so we can comfort others. You know, we, we seek not only the com uh, comfort from God for ourselves, says Paul, but we seek broken hearts so we can comfort with the strength we've received from him. Now that, with that illustration, let's go back to 2 Corinthians, okay? Turn back there if you would. Starting in verses 3 and 4, we were able to see some handholds for us to understand Paul, as he reveals his innermost thoughts, as he experiences the sweet from the bitter. And, and we, saw, we saw Paul's attitude. That's a confident assurance in the nature of God. We saw Paul's experience. Uh, so that at the very point of trouble, God is actively there comforting. We saw Paul's application. God gives us you know, these benefits so that we can give them away. And now we're going to see an illustration. This is so like Paul to do this. Okay? So he gives us the basic principles to stand on, and then he's going to give us an illustration. And so look at 2 Corinthians 1, 5, if you would. Okay? For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance... So also our comfort is abundant through Christ. 
Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Verse 7, and our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Let's stop right there. And with the time, obviously, we're not going to cover all that. But let's look back at verse 5. So here comes the illustration. For just as the sufferings of Christ, so the sufferings, pathometa, here in the context, this has to do with enduring calamity or evil. And so the idea there is the sufferings of Christ, this enduring calamity or evil, the idea is reflecting on what Christ had to suffer during his life on earth. So here's the illustration. Christ had a lot of things he suffered on earth, a lot of difficulty, a lot of calamity, a lot of evil. Now look at the next part. Are ours in abundance? So here's the deal. All believers are included in this statement. The idea of abundance is that perisuo, that word we've seen so many times, overflowing, present, active, indicative. So the idea is this, for just as the sufferings of Christ, the calamity, the evil he had to suffer during his lifetime, are ours in abundance, they are overflowing, they are abounding, present active indicative, seeing that it's true that the sufferings of Christ are ours in an abounding measure. So we have those as a result of being a believer. So Paul is connecting with every believer. That's the reality, he says, of every true believer. So here's our next principle. The sufferings of Christ overflow to us, and so we are made to be partakers of them with him. And here's the, here's the principle. The suffering that Christ had to suffer are part of the commonality that all believers share. Okay? So as we work our way through these principles, and we pull them from Paul's life, this victorious life, not because things were always good, but the things were very difficult, and he'd been shaped and used by these difficulties through the Lord's uh, sovereignty over him to make him ready to be a tool Paul just says, listen, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. That's the actual fact, a well-known, established fact that the sufferings of Christ are ours in an abounding measure. And they are the commonality of all believers. Paul's prayer, his experience, are the prayer and experience of every true believer as he relates that. Now, there's a couple ways that we can see this, and we'll see this over and over again in Paul's writings. I'm going to give you some illustrations now that you've got that down. You can jot some of these down in your margin if you'd like. Paul says this in Philippians 3.10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What's the next part? <clears throat> and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And, you know, we could go on and on with these, and I know you can see this, and you've experienced it to a greater or lesser degree, the sufferings of Christ in your own life. So just a few illustrations as the Bible explains them. But Paul's desire is to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and that, that life that comes as a result of Christ being raised from the grave, Paul uh, wants to experience that too, and as a believer, you do. And the fellowship of his suffering, and Paul says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 1.5 that they are ours in abundance. So he's just saying, listen, I want this, I'm praying for it, and it is the reality. And we see that all the time, right? That we pray for what God has intended for us already. That's the way to pray. Jesus asked his disciples in Mark 10, verse 38, he says this. <coughs> Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. Of course, this is early in the ministry, right? And uh, they're 
pretty confident in themselves. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. What's that mean? I mean, you're going to have the difficulties, you're going to have the hardships, you're going to drink what I drink, you're going to be baptized where I'm baptized, the hardships and all the things that come, the calamity, the, the, the evil, the things that are going to be poured out on me, you are going to have to endure them. That will be your lot. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, so that no one may be disturbed by these afflictions. As he talks to these uh, people in Macedonia, he says, listen, these are very hard, hard times come to you. It shouldn't disturb you. It shouldn't surprise you. We see that in other places. Don't be surprised, for you yourselves know that we have been what? What is that? Destined for this. The overflowing of the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Paul says that is the case. That's a commonality every believer shares. But Paul says, don't be surprised to these Macedonians in the hardship you're suffering. Why? Because you were destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. So Paul says, listen, I'm not telling you something you haven't realized. Just, re just remember, it shouldn't surprise you. Again, I just want to show you up, beloved. This is a very important foundational point for people who walk with the Lord. Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. The calamity and evil poured out on Christ is ours. It's the commonality of every believer. Our sufferings for Christ's sake arise from the same cause as his, namely the opposition of darkness to light, right? And, and, uh, and of death into life that's imparted to, by him to his members. It's, it's on him from the word, for, by the word of God. It's on on him because of the sinfulness of men. It's on him because of hard hearts and stiff necks. It's the same thing that brings difficulty to you and to me. The sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. In John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Listen, my beloved, he says, a slave isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. The problem will be in the modern church is if we're not seeing any of the afflictions of Christ on us at all. Because Paul says, listen, the suffering for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, there should be difficulty because you're a believer walking in the culture. And if there isn't at all, then I would say you may not be a believer. If this is the fact, and then Jesus points it out to his disciples and warns them out front that this is how it'll be, then we should have some difficulty. So being salt and light in the culture is automatically going to fill us up in abundance with the sufferings of Christ. The same things. The hard hearts and stiff necks of men, the sinfulness of men, the word of God, you know, being proclaimed as truth, whatever it is, see? So to a greater or lesser extent, there's going to be suffering in, to, to us in abundance. And then Jesus said, listen, I, I said this to you already. You're a slave of mine. You're not greater than the master. So not only are there tribulations that come as a result of a sinful world and a body that doesn't work right for you and chastening from, in a purifying process like we saw with Peter, you know, in difficult people, there are common sufferings that are as a result of being a disciple of Jesus. So in addition to those other things, there are difficulties as being a disciple of Jesus. And Paul illustrates these points, and he says this. Look back at your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 1, 5. So also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So we have abundant sufferings. We share in the abundant sufferings of Christ. They're full on us. And then principle number five, then, 
So if the sufferings are ours in commonality, what is that? The comfort that comes from Christ as we share in his sufferings is part of the commonality that all believers share. So two things very important that every believer will, will experience and know. One of them is the overflow and filling up of the sufferings that were on Christ. If you walk as salt and light in the earth, you are going to have that difficulty. On top of the difficulties that may come from his perfection of you and hard, hard people and whatever, you'll have the sufferings of Christ on you. And another commonality is the comfort that uh, is, is, uh, comes from Christ that we share in his sufferings. That's part of the commonality with us as well. See? Same idea with the same words. <clears throat> And, you know, but instead of sufferings, pathometa, we have paraclesis, we have comfort, see. Both common. Sufferings, pathometa, paraclesis, comfort. The strengthening, the encouragement, the help. In verb form, it means to come alongside and to help support. As a proper noun, it's one of the names of the Holy Spirit. Here, it overflows. Again, it is abundant. It's the idea of of abounding, parasuo, present active indicative. Seeing it's true, this is the reality. The comfort of Christ is ours in an abounding nature. Okay, that's the illustration. And I think we could say for Paul that the comforts with which, which he derived from Christ were more, catch this, more than sufficient to overbalance the difficulty he endured. Would you say that? Could you say that? That the, in the difficult times you've endured, perhaps from difficult people, hardship, Christ uh, perhaps bringing chastening on you, perhaps perfecting you, whatever it is, and the sufferings that are directly related to, to walking as an example of Christ in the world. Could you say that in that difficulty, in that hardship, has the comfort of Christ been an abounding measure? So has there been more comfort than there has been difficulty? So the, the comfort of Christ is always overcoming the difficulty and overbalance of the difficulty that you endured. Because Paul would say that. Philippians 3.8, he says this, More than that, I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And we just read over that like it's like no big deal. Just put that in perspective in your own life. For Christ's sake, you have suffered the loss of all things. Because, beloved, there's people in the Middle East who could say that very thing. There's people in South Sudan who could say that. For the love of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things. <clears throat> And count them, here it is, but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You know, he really didn't care. And he lived that way. He didn't just say it, see. He knew how to obey. He knew how to abound. Philippians 4.11. Romans 8.35, remember this? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved, him, uh, who loved us. For your sake we are, con we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's Christ's difficulty in abundance, isn't it? That's Christ's hardship in abundance. See? But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquer. That's his comfort in overabounding measure, isn't it? Even through all the difficult times, Paul says, listen, even in the hardship, the comfort I receive from Christ, the, the love I receive from the Lord is overwhelmingly greater than the hardship I receive as a result of his name. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities, or things present or things to come, or powers, or height or depth, or any created thing, so it just kind of takes in a whole scope. I don't think there's anything that you'll experience in your life that won't fall into some of those categories, okay? 
No height, no depth, or any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul had the assurance of the comfort of Jesus. He was convinced that God was the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And though Jesus, you know, and through Jesus, he was continually comforted in abundance for every affliction that was his through his relationship to Christ. So how was he comforted? What did that look like? What does strengthening and encouraging and helping look like to a believer? And with this, we'll, we'll, we'll finish up. They came from Jesus' presence through the indwelling spirit. The grace in which Paul stood, where sin increased and grace increased all the more. From the perseverance, proven character, and hope it revealed. We saw Romans 5, right? From Jesus' love poured out on, uh, in the heart, Romans 5, 5. From the success that Christ gave to the gospel in Paul's life. That was comfort to him, wasn't it? Jesus' presence in the indwelling spirit, the grace which Paul stood, where his sin increased and grace increased all the more, that's comfort. See, the pers from pers perseverance, proven character, and hope, that hardship reveals, that's comfort, isn't it? When you see those things as true in your life, that's comfort. You know that there's an active, uh, uh, sovereign God who's involved in your life, making you into the person he wants you to be. And that's, that's great comfort, isn't it? It's not just random suffering and, and things that are just worthless and, and don't last. Jesus' love poured out on the heart. Success Christ gave the gospel. Strengthening and comforting also come from the hope of reward, which was held out to him by the Redeemer as a result of all suffering. See, I, I look forward to that, Paul says. There's a reward set aside for me. I understand. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed, catch it, what? We suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. The sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. And if that is true, then the comforts of Christ are also ours in abundance. So we're going to suffer with him so we can be glorified with him. And we see in Peter, the more your difficulties arise and the more that you, you handle them in the way the Lord has described for you too, the more you'll be able to glorify God for an eternal state. And you'd never be able to do that before. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See? Paul says, listen, the comfort, the overwhelming love, and this, this reward that still stands out is more than compensating for the difficult times that I'm having. And again, these are hard concepts to assimilate if you are in the victim mode, if you're this all things are against me mode, if you're, man, God must not be a very good God because things are happening in this world that are not very good. So again, we see the principle number five. You know, we can count this as a universal truth for every believer. We will suffer in the cause of Christ, and when we're persecuted, oppressed, wronged, mistreated, and troubled on his account, he will take care that our hearts are filled with consolation. I'll finish with this illustration. <clears throat> Eli Hoffman was born May 7, 1839, in Orangeburg, PA. His father was a minister. Eli followed Christ at a young age. He attended Philadelphia Public Schools, studied science, then pursued the classics at Union Seminary of the Evangelical Association. He worked for 11 years with the association's publishing house in Cleveland, Ohio, and during that time he married the love of his life. But before much time had passed, she was taken from him in death. After losing her, he returned to Pennsylvania and devoted 33 years in pastoring Benton Harbor Presbyterian Church. Elijah's pastime was writing hymns, many of them which came from his pastoral experiences. One day, for example, while ministering to some of the poor of Lebanon, PA, he met a woman whose depression seemed beyond cure. 
She opened up her heart to him and shared her pent-up sorrow, and wringing her hands, she cried, What shall I do? Oh, what shall I do? Hoffman knew what she should do, for he himself had learned those lessons of God's comfort. He said to the woman, You cannot do better than to take your sorrows to Jesus. You must tell Jesus. And suddenly the lady's face lighted up and she said, yes. Yes, she cried, that's it, I must tell Jesus. And her words echoed in Hoffman's ears and he mulled them over as he returned home and he drew out his pen and he started writing, I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. Jesus will help me, Jesus alone. Hoffman lived to be 90, telling Jesus his burdens and giving the church hymns like, what a wonderful savior, and down at the cross, and are you washed in the blood, and leaning on the everlasting arms. See, Eli Hoffman had learned something in his sorrow, and it was exactly what Paul had experienced. The reality that for the believer really is twofold. There will be an overflow of suffering from Christ's suffering to you. And just as surely there will be an overflow of comfort from Christ to you. And I think that as with learning to unlearn the victim mentality and realize that our lives are tools that God is preparing through our difficulties is to be instruments of comfort. I think we also need to learn that we were destined for suffering for Christ so we really need to stop looking at it as if something unusual is happening to you. Difficulty and hardship in ministry, rejection and insult in witness, those, beloved, are the marks of the mission. And with those marks come an over, overabundance of encouragement and help and courage in the promises and fruit that overflow from the Savior who is our master. Let's bow our be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for how rich it is and what a blessing it is uh, to my own life in this study this week and an encouragement and a reminder and a rebuke and all of the things that it needed to be and more, I'm sure you have more for me to learn just like you have for these beloved folk here. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll be about these things. Help us to not look at it as surprising, as Paul told the Macedonian believers, that some difficulties come to you. For we told you it was coming, and indeed, you know it's to be true. As Paul said, the sufferings of Christ are ours in overflowing measure. So also is the comfort of Christ. That's, that's the illustration. We already experienced this. This is the truth. Our attitude needs to be God's sovereign, and his comfort and his mercies never end. He's right there at the point of suffering. He gives it. And then, Father, to understand that there's so much here that is already going on, and we shouldn't be surprised by any of it. Make us people like that. Help us not to be these very immature believers who somehow think that their difficulty and their hardship, however difficult and hard it may have been, not in any way minimizing that, but their difficulty and hardship, are somehow a surprise to you, or you were surprised that it happened, or somehow your promises are true for everyone, but not for them. Help us to understand these principles very, very clearly, Father, so that we can walk through this life prepared to comfort others 
and prepared to take on whatever it is that happens, this perfecting process you may have in store for us, using people, using difficult times, as we saw with Peter, even using Satan or his demons. They're not free to do whatever they want. As believers, we're held by you, and you allow these things in our life so that we may become more like you and be comforted and become comforters. So, Lord, I pray as we assimilate these things, Lord, then help us to begin to live this way and encourage others this way. This is what you'd have us to do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.